Greetings to all of you. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just want you to have an understanding of a, about what you are going to hear. I am here to seek, not to speak, my own agenda or message. The Word of God commands us in 1 Peter 4.11, if any man minister or if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God's Spirit to speak through us, not our own words, but the words that are coming from God to his people. And that is what I am seeking to do in this message. I do not have these messages prepared, except that what I do is I cast lots before God to be led to a particular chapter. And I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour, and also within that half hour, I make some brief notes most of the time. And then immediately after, I begin to speak from that passage of Scripture, trusting God's Spirit to carry me along beyond myself with insights and understanding and words that are beyond myself to me as an individual, to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come across this message, and to the corporate body of Christ. Today I received Joshua chapter 1. Now this is a passage that doesn't seem to have much that one could really seem to get a message out of. But I am looking forward to what God would say to me and to you out there as you hear this message. So first of all, I am going to read Joshua chapter one. And after the reading, trust God to speak from what he would say. Beginning in verse one, now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. As I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto all this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give to them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest." 
This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals. For within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land, which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord have given you your brethren rest, as he hath given you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them, then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side Jordan toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth not rebel against that doth rebel against thy commandment, and will not hearken unto thy words, and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Excuse me as I just take a brief drink of water. In the first five verses of Joshua chapter one, basically God is assuring his people that he's with, particularly with Joshua. But before I get into explaining this chapter, I want to point out that through the casting of lots in the last few days before me, the theme of the chapter was basically on genuine leadership over God's people. This is what is found in Joshua chapter 1, is instructions to Joshua to be the leader of the children of Israel. And yesterday, which I did not make a message on, it was 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which again is emphasizing leadership over the body of Christ. And the day before that was shared from the word of God, which was on Saturday from Luke 13. But 1 Thessalonians 1, I made a brief outline, and I think it would help at this point before going into Joshua chapter 1. 
as God does in a very powerful way lead in the word of God by the casting of lots, as I have found time and time again, that he puts together a very clear theme. That's if we're walking in holiness and we're not using this type of a thing as a game. Okay, in First Thessalonians chapter 1, in the first three verses, I made a brief statement that genuine leadership from God has the corporate body of believers deeply on their heart at all times with a continual thanksgiving and prayers and remembrance. In other words, there's a tremendous love in leadership for the ones that they are shepherding to the point that they're continually on their hearts with thanksgiving, with prayers, and just thinking of them throughout the day out of love, out of compassion, to see them come forth and enter their destiny. And then in the next section of this chapter in First Thessalonians, which I haven't read in this message, I mentioned that leadership of God recognizes the choosing of God on believers. And this is borne witness by the gospel coming with the power of the Holy Ghost and much assurance. Leadership recognizes the election of God upon God's people. And that's the exact word that is used in 1 Thessalonians here in verse 4 to 5. That the leadership recognizes those that God has called forth out of the world. And the way that is evident is in the fact that there is the power of the Holy Spirit and much assurance of faith in those that are truly brought forth anew by the Spirit of God or born again. And as the word is ministered, there is much grace that is released towards these. Leadership recognizes the election of God on his people. And in verse 5, leadership is from, that is from God is an example that inspires the body of Christ to follow Christ in a full consecration of love because they see such a genuine love in that leader. They can see that he ministers truly with his heart in it, that he bears his heart out before the people. Look at Moses, who laid on his face before the people in humility when he was misunderstood by them, misjudged by them out of their own self-seeking ways. He humbled himself. In fact, it says <clears throat> concerning Moses that he was the meekest man on all the earth. <clears throat> And the understanding of meekness is not an understanding of weakness. It is an understanding of pliableness before God and before people to be gentle in the face of hostility. But even Moses wasn't perfect in his meekness. As we all know, he smote the rock out of anger because of the rebellion that was in God's people, which was his one downfall. 
by what God is wanting us in the body of Christ to be to one another. And really, here is another point that needs to be emphasized. All of us that have been brought forth anew by the Spirit of God are leaders. Because what did Christ say? He said, whoever would be leader among you, let him be servant of all. And those that have truly been brought forth anew of the Spirit of God have birthed in them the love that is from God. Which love does not have a self-seeking interest, but one thing, the well-being of others out of the view of their well-being, which they recognize in reciprocative fellowship by beholding the being of God and who he really is to them in reality. And that is his holiness, which is the integrity of his love, that is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love, a God of judgment that requires consequence for our disobedience. But that in that absolute integrity, and purity of love that is a blazing fire of love that consumes all that is contrary to it has the foundation to be transcendent in creative, creative expression that has no corruption in it, which is ultimately manifested in God's love to show mercy to his creation, to assure his creation that they can have destiny and purpose, that they can be forgiven if they will repent and receive his provision of mercy, which is very clearly emphasized from the time of Adam and Eve to be in God himself. It is emphasized time and time again in the Old Testament that forgiveness lies within God and God alone. And yet God requires an innocent lamb that one lays their hands on for their sin as a symbol of their sin being transferred to that lamb. And yet they recognize that that lamb doesn't re represent their soul and their spirit, that only its physical body can cleanse their physical body so that God's presence can dwell with their soul and spirit. And so they recognize that ultimately, no animal could atone for their soul. And so the psalmist David, and in other places in the scripture, you have verses that say, in effect, this, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give the fruit of my womb, my womb or shall I give my own body? No, nothing is sufficient. And then it becomes very clearly evident that because God requires judgment, and that an animal is not a representation of man, nor can be a perfect atoning sacrifice, that therefore there must be in God the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. The moral capacity to absorb the judgment of his creation upon himself by suffering more than the mere creature, more than you as an individual, and humbling himself more than you as an individual. That kind of love that is so pure that it can do that 
is the ultimate expression of love. And only in the power of God to forgive is there the possibility of providing for creation destiny and ultimate purpose. And if God could not assure his creation the possibility of destiny and ultimate purpose, it would imply that God would be imperfect. But God isn't. The ultimate perfection of love is in a holiness or is an integrity of love that can be transcendent to assure forgiveness. And the evidence of that love is perfect in its integrity, is in the power to assure mercy and forgiveness, which was manifested in Jesus Christ, the one true God, the full expression of God into this time and space realm and government. Who suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, because he loved you as an individual so much, and because he loved what he had created so much that he wanted a corporate bride that he could bring to the Father. And oh, I love to talk about the the fear of God and all of that, but I do not want to get sidetracked in this message onto something so interesting and edifying as the unity within the triunity of the one true God who as the Father is in government beyond the time and space realm and as the Son governs within the creation realm, the time and space realm, and fills all things by his Holy Spirit in government. But this is not the place to get into discussing that. The emphasis here on describing the condescension of God, and I will emphasize also that he has provided a way to receive forgiveness for his creation that has been tempted. But those that have directly gone against the direct flow of God's spirit, like the angels that have not been tempted, that's a different thing and not here to discuss the in-depth aspects of the difference between that and man upon the earth as opposed to the angels. What I want to share here is that the ultimate example of leadership is in God's love that condescended in his son and loved us so much that he laid down his life for us and tasted death for all of us and conquered it. And that's all I will share without getting into too much in that aspect. But here again, we see leadership. Christ was an example that inspired others to follow him. And so we see that the disciples, the 12 apostles, were all martyred, even as Christ was martyred. There are those that did not taste of death, such as Elijah, such as Enoch, which entered into such a close and an intimate relationship with God. But even 
John the Baptist, who was beheaded and did no miracle, was considered by Christ to be the greatest among man as a man of God, in contrast to Elijah and others. Was he an inspiration and an example? Yes, John was. And I do have a message way back somewhere. I remember preaching on that that's in one of these podcasts. The other point that is in Thessalonians here on leadership is in verses 6 to 9. Leadership that is of God births genuine conversion, which is evident in the fact that those people turn from having an idolatrous life and also in the fact that they have a faith that spreads even in the face of persecution with joy of the Holy Ghost. That's what genuine leadership births. Nowadays, there are many that are seeking to win others into the kingdom of God by trying to befriend them and being and bring them into their own self-interest and the things of the world that they are interested in, they use. And then they're asked to say a prayer, which maybe they really haven't seen their genuine need of God. And so basically you have this principle where people are trying to fulfill God's promise in their own ways out of deception, which has crept into their lives because they've lost sight of their relationship with God and are really in love with the world. And so they use the world to win the world. And what happens is you get a similar principle as happened with Abraham, where he tried to fulfill God's promise with Hagar and God Ishmael, which was many years of trouble and trial in his life. And so we have Ishmael conversions. People that really haven't entered into a genuine rebirth experience, or if there has been one, it's very shallow, and there's a lot of deceptions in their lives that are obviously rooted in covetousness, which the Word of God calls idolatry. But when people enter into a deep conversion, their lives are totally changed. They are a new creature in Christ. And there is the evidence of God's presence in their lives that bears fruit. Didn't know I'd end up preaching from the First Thessalonians a bit, but that's fine. We're just letting God move here as he will. And the last verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I made this statement. Genuine leadership teaches believers to look forward to the second coming of Christ and to wait on this and on God. Yes, genuine leadership imparts vision. If we are not shown those things to encourage us, to inherit, as it were, the promised land. Then how, possibly, can we follow the leadership if they are not even seeing it? The Word of God says, without a vision, the people perish. 
The focus should be on the joy that is set before us. The word of God says concerning Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. When people become merely religious, they can emphasize the cross without grace. The understanding of relationship with Christ, where we are to take up our cross daily and follow him, is in the context of seeing that it's worth it all. As Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man was searching for. And when he found it, for joy of what he found, he sold all that he had so that he could purchase that treasure. And genuine leadership points people to their destiny. That they can inherit a destiny of ultimate, lasting fulfillment that is ever enlarging without end, for it goes on and on throughout eternity. In expressions of reciprocative fellowship and love to God, as part of this corporate bride. When we see the reality of our destiny in God and the leadership, we see that reality in the leadership. What does it say concerning Christ in 1 John? I think it is very appropriate that we look at 1 John, so I will turn there at this point to 1 John because it describes Christ. This is what it says, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. This understanding of the word eternal needs to be understood more. Eternal has the understanding of a quality of life that is ultimate in its quality, ultimate in its wholeness, in its fulfillment, and without corruption that can go on forever because there is no corruption in it. It has the understanding of a quality without corruption, which is this integrity of love with, that I have described, which is also known as the holiness of God, from which springs forth the mercy of God to his creation to provide destiny and to express creativity that is ever enlarging without corruption. And so here we see that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, leadership brings people into a place of such intimacy with God that there is an overflowing of joy in the midst of tribulation. As it says there in Thessalonians, that the word came to them in much assurance 
and enjoy the Holy Ghost in the midst of great persecution and affliction that they were experiencing. Oh, yes. Leadership is filled with encouragement to cause people to have the actual revelation by the Holy Spirit of the joy of their personal destiny and of the joy of their destiny corporately as a body of believers. Now we'll go into what the Holy Spirit was giving for Joshua chapter 1. So, in this first part of Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is facing great opposition. They already came out of the promised land. land. They already wanted to enter, pardon me, the promised land the first time and failed through unbelief. And that whole generation died off. But Joshua and Caleb were the only two that entered the land because they didn't bring a negative report about the obstacles of opposition that stood in the way of them inheriting their promise. Here again, we see that their focus was not on the opposition but on the inheritance, on the joy that was set before them. Why was it that Joshua and Caleb, the word of God says, had another spirit? Their spirit was of a different quality than all the other people because their spirit was in conformity to the spirit of God. What causes conformity to hate what God hates and to love what God loves? It is a conformity to the very being of God. And the word of God makes it clear in 1 John that God is love. That is the very essence of his being. And as I have already mentioned, there are two aspects to this love. First, that it is totally pure in integrity to be a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to love, which is the foundation from which springs creative expression that can be ever enlarging forever without corruption that was ultimately manifested on the cross that God has in his being the moral capacity to forgive as became evident in the center of history in his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is a love that is able to go through any opposition, no matter how formidable, because it knows its identity 
and it knows its identity first in God, and that in God is its destiny, and that that destiny is ultimately whole, and as such, ultimately enlarging and fulfilling. There's a song I know that most people don't know, and it goes like this. Remove the veil, Lord, from my heart. Remove the veil, Lord. Remove the veil, Lord, from my heart. True revelation grant to me. A vision clear, O Lord, impart of your reality. Joshua and Caleb were wholehearted. Their spirit was totally in conformity, or in great measure in conformity to the Spirit of God. Because they spent much time seeking God, it says concerning Joshua that he spent all night after Moses left the tabernacle on his face before God seeking God. He delighted to wait on God, to be still and know that he is God, to be in awe of who God is. I'm writing a book on the fear of God that is very in-depth and of all that issues out of that. I can say this, that it is in the fear of God that lies the very secret of abiding in God. It says, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and to them he will show his covenant. It says, he that abideth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In Isaiah 33, it makes it clear, as it is speaking of the Messiah in context, it says this, the fear of the Lord is his treasure, speaking of Christ. Fear of God is not a mere intellectual ascent. It certainly involves our choice, our choice to choose to recognize God for who he truly is. First, in as it were, this negative aspect of his being, which isn't really negative, but the negative symbol in electricity can represent a foundation because it's horizontal. And it is this integrity of God's love, which is his holiness, which is the purity of God's love that requires judgment, that we should be in utter awe. For it is the very foundation that allowed God to ex that allows God to express creativity and to, and to be able to have a corporate bride and to go on in cre creating things through his love that is ever fulfilling and ever enlarging. Of course, our own free wills, that's another topic, must be brought into conformity to his love. Because we're created with free will, there's the capacity for corruption, and obviously this is God's purpose, is that we come out of this into union with him where there is the same conformity to his being, where that corruption that is in us is conquered. And it is conquered through first learning to have a deep turning 
from the heart by making that choice to turn in awe of God and an appreciation of his holiness. For it is only within such quality of being that there can be unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it and that is indicative of being the very source thereof. Yes, there should be utter awe. Do you know that those that have studied the human brain say that half of the brain, some of the top experts, I heard one talking about this, that has been studying the human brain, he says, half of the brain was created to comprehend awe. Yes, we were created to find our fulfillment in being in awe of who God is in his holiness, in his purity. For when we choose to recognize and appreciate the holiness of God instead of being offended at the consequences of his holiness and all the suffering that is around us, which if it was not judged would mean that God was condoning that which was corrupt so that he could no longer contain unlimited life and power in goodness that could ever enlarge in goodness and in wholeness. It is out of the holiness of God that there is wholeness in your being because it is in the holiness of God that there is reality. God is called the I am that I am, which is another way of saying that he is the ultimate source of reality. And this reality is only what can satisfy the inner core of your being because you were created for the pleasure of God and to find your ultimate pleasure in relationship with God. I describe our being that is rebelled against the holiness of God and deserves the judgment of God as like a black hole in outer space that is continually sucking things into itself in a destructive way by making choices that are wrong. Now, the love of God can also be defined as God's totally free volitional quality to always choose the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification of fulfillment. God is always choosing the highest lasting good, and it is the purity of his love to judge anything that would be less that causes him to be the very container of eternal life, of ultimate power, of ultimate Life without corruption that can ever enlarge in wholeness, in beauty, and in fulfillment. Out of wholeness comes beauty. And King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. Yes, but the enemy lies to us, and he says, that we'll find fulfillment in this temporary beauty or this that lies to us and says oh this is really beautiful but inside there's destruction says in jonah jonah says this after he went through the trial of his own deceptions that unraveled and exposed his deception and purified him he says this those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy 
And so we try to fulfill the vacuum that was only made to be fulfilled by God. And we keep grasping and grasping. And the more desperately we grasp to make that inner core of our being find fulfillment, the more we experience the consequences of judgment that corner us to come to the place of recognizing like the prodigal son, the deception of our own life and of all those around us that have betrayed us and all the false belief systems that have betrayed us. And we finally don't want anything. We loathe ourselves and we loathe all of these deceptions so that we're hungry for one thing and that is what is ultimately trustworthy, what is ultimately real, which is this being of God that out of his holiness issues a wholeness that can come into our being with such a reality that it satisfies the very inner core of who we are. God is calling us as his people to come into conformity like Joshua and Caleb. What is godliness? It is conformity to who God is so that we hate what God hates and love what God loves. God hates what's contrary to love, and he loves what is in conformity to genuine love, which is always constructive unto meaning and ultimate purpose that is totally fulfilling. God is calling us to be those that can be leaders like Joshua and Caleb because we learn to lay down the things that are our own self-initiations, whether it be that we want to find fulfillment in amusements or in pleasures or deceive ourselves into false belief systems that claim they can get rid of ego through some philosophical belief or meditation but all you're doing is trying to crucify yourself and you always end up with one hand that you can't nail. It is only when we recognize our emptiness apart from God and cry out like the prodigal son, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that we enter in to reciprocation of who God is. The fear of God is a choice to recognize God in his holiness and out of that, God in his mercy to us. And we cannot really know the greatness of God's mercy to us if we've not chosen to fear God in the first place and recognize who he is. But when we see the greatness of God's mercy to us, we see the greatness of his love to us. And it's then that our spirit reaches out from its grasping state of deception and covetousness that is idolatrous into a state of trust and surrender where we let go and we let God have his way. There's that old hymn that says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. The chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Many of us are in prison houses, even as believers, because we've gone astray into our own self-seeking ways, even of religiosity and busyness where we're so busy in the church, doing this and that and wanting to find acceptance and glory from people and whatever else motive is false or that we don't even recognize. And God is calling us to draw aside and to put him forth first by getting on our faces and spending quality time seeking him so that the things that have quenched our thirst for reality in relationship with God will 
be conquered, and that thirst for God will come back into our being so that he can give us living water. Whoever is thirsty, Christ said, I will freely give of the water of life. And he said, whoever believes with their life into me out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And those rivers of living water are the very presence of God, which is reality itself, the very spirit of God. That truly satisfies, but it also, in its satisfaction, and I've written on this, I can't explain it here for time, creates out of God tasting so good, a desire for greater enlargement, which is a different kind of thirst. That is not a thirst that has an emptiness in it, but a thirst that has a wholeness in it that wants to enlarge out of that wholeness into a greater wholeness. But God is calling us as his people to be those that live godly. And it says in the word of God, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When you are in a relationship with God, the spirit of God through your time of fellowship with God, where you're choosing to recognize God for who he is and be reciprocative of that, You know, the word of God says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did we receive Christ? It was when our heart was genuinely circumcised by that two-edged sword of the spirit of God's word, which first was revealed in holiness, out of which issued mercy. And it is in reflecting on who God is in those two aspects that we worship him in spirit and truth as it says, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and in truth and have no confidence in the flesh. Learning to wait on God like Joshua and Caleb brings a conformity of quality in our spirit with God's spirit. In fact, the way we were initially converted I like to explain this just briefly, can be illustrated by an open hand. The moment we let go of self and we see God for who he is and his mercy to us personally, and thus in his love to us, our spirit reaches out like an open hand. This represents a state of selflessness. Our spirit in a state of selflessness, also our soul is represented in this too. It's not just our spirit. And that state of selflessness represented in an open hand of surrender. It's also described that our spirit is the spirit of faith. We having the same spirit, therefore we speak. And it's talking about belief. I'm not going to go into that, but it also says this, the boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Self-glory, self-worship is excluded when there is a faith that reaches out like this open hand towards recognizing who God is. And then the Spirit of God, which represents the other open hand, in a state of selfless love, comes to rest against the first open hand 
and forms two hands of prayer, which also represent the new nature, the divine seed, as it says in 1 John. This is the victory that it over it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The new divine nature involves our spirit in a state of faith that is held in that state of faith by the indwelling of God's spirit with our spirit that has been brought into conformity in some measure in our soul and spirit to the spirit of God. And it is now learning to, as we have received Christ, so continue in that relationship through waiting on God. That's learning to be still and know he is God until we curb our own self-initiations and presumptions before God and enter in to a place of reality with God. I could go on and I don't know what the time is. I forgot to put the timer on. But I know that this message has been going on for some time now. I'll just take a look for 48 minutes. I can preach for a while yet. Many of my messages are over a little over an hour. So I've described what was different in Joshua and Caleb as leaders in the body of Christ. There are many leaders today that have lost out in a life of prayer. They're trying to run their church like a business, and they're caught up in busyness and religious activity. Even the church services themselves and the way they are assembling together is filled with the same self-initiated, presumptuous ways before God. Churches complain that they can't get people to pray. I have a simple suggestion. Start your church service as a prayer meeting. Leadership, I encourage you. Start your church service. Get on your knees before the congregation. Get on your face before the congregation. And call the congregation to do so also. And just wait on God and be in awe of him coming into your midst. Be still. Doesn't mean that you can't cry out to God. But be sensitive to when he's leading you to cry out to him. When he's leading you to be in a place of just waiting on him and being still. You have the spirit of God in you if you're really born of him. He can sensitize that before his presence. When you are sensitive to his presence and in awe of him. And out of that. You will draw nigh to God, and his presence will begin to come down. And you'll begin to see with the eye of your heart, because there will be a rending in your heart that will take the veil away. You will begin to see with the eye of your heart the glory of God and the beauty out of that glory, so that you cannot help but want to spring forth into great expressions of creative liberty. And either a new song that God gives you or a prophetic word or a testimony or a word of wisdom or a word of encouragement. And it should never be that leadership holds back the members of the body from fully expressing their gifts in every meeting. It should be that the Spirit of God manifests through the body, confirming the word that he is wanting to say to the body of Christ. One person speaks not knowing what the other person was led to speak on, and it all starts to dovetail together. And I've been in many meetings in the past where God was moving this way, and then the leadership themselves had 
prepared a message that confirmed what everyone was saying by the spirit and the body. And that's where God is wanting us to be with his people in, as leaders one to another and those that have been charged to be overseers of the flock and shepherds of the flock. To be in that place that we allow the headship of Christ to come down. This chapter is about inheritance. It's about conquering the obstacles. Are we not in an hour that is urgent? That we come to the place that we rise up as the body of Christ as an army, like Israel did here. It is obvious that the hour is urgent and that the night is soon coming when no man can work and yet there's a great harvest to reap. And God is allowing already judgments to come upon the face of the earth that are horrifying people. Because the word of God says he will shake all things that are shakable, that what is unshakable might remain, which is the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken because it does not have any destructibility in it. It is totally in conformity to the being of God and allows the being, the very presence of God's spirit to inhabit them. God's plan is that we are all knit together in love. As Paul the Apostle said, he had great conflict, and that conflict was that the believers came into such a unity that their hearts were knit together in love under the riches of the full assurance of understanding, even of the mystery of the Father and the Son. That mystery is the unity that's between the Father and the Son that is found in the fear of God. And, it go, and it's like this. The Son sees the glory of the Father, the holiness of the Father, the purity of His love, and He's filled with thankfulness and appreciation as the Father is expressing out of this purity such creative love and expression that He's filled with thanks. And He says to the Father, Father, I'm so filled with thankfulness. I want to express my love to you. So I want to go into a great condescension to suffer even more than the creature and humble myself more than the creature so that I can bring to you, Father, a corporate bride that I can bring to you as an expression of love to you, Father, that you can inherit, Father. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I see the glory in you and your expression of me into creation. And I am so filled with love and appreciation for what I see in you that I just want to have you inherit a corporate bride. I want you to experience being the head over your corporate bride in fellowship with me. So, son, I suffer your going, the pain of it. I suffer it for you to be enlarged in your love to me and me to be enlarged in my love to you. This is what comes out of the secret of abiding in the fear of God, a oneness that we'll see past the faults of our brothers and sisters and we'll see that diamond that is in the rough and will go and, as it were, wash their feet with the word of God and will go, as it were, and even though they've offended us and hurt us, we will go and humble ourselves to before them for the little bit that we've done that's far less. And we'll say, forgive me, brother. 
And we will conquer with love as we learn to let go of offense and have forgiveness one to another. God will baptize us in his love so that we comprehend with all saints the height and the breadth and the depth of his love. And it is this knitting together that allows us to be living stones that God can inhabit with his spirit corporately that will conquer our community, our city, our nation. The hour is dark. Even this week, I saw the report from a senator in Fox News and checked it out later on the internet. Two large bombers, one, I believe, a Russian one, and according to the senator, I guess the other one was a Chinese one. These bombers carried each of them eight crews, large crews and missiles. Whether they were carrying actual nuclear warheads, we don't know. I don't know if they know. But they carried nuclear warheads. And they were practicing an attack on North America and actually even violated Canadian airspace. You can look at the prophecies of Henry Groover on the internet, a man of God that sacrificed far more than I know anyone else. He's gone in front of terrorists that told him they were going to cut off his head and boldly proclaim the gospel, and God's delivered him time and time again from such events. A man that really lives it, and he's prophesied about the judgments that are coming. You can check it out on my site at loverealize.com or go somewhere on the internet and type in his name, Henry Gruber. So the hour is urgent. God is calling us as his people to repent corporately as the body of Christ of our ungodliness, that we would think we could find satisfaction in the loves of the world to win people to Christ, that we would try to compromise and condone the things that God hates. The word of God says the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. And we don't think of those things as sin nowadays. Does that mean that we shouldn't watch sports? I don't have any desire for it. Am I going to condemn some? What the issue is, is where are you spending your time? Where is your focus? Where is your hunger? Where is your fellowship with God? Is it robbed by all of these lying vanities of the gods of amusement and pleasure and materialism and motivations to try to fulfill your life instead of sacrificing these things and trusting God to provide? God is calling us as the church, as the body of Christ to repent. And me too, where I get deceived to try sometimes to be in a panic because I don't have any money or something. No, I can rest in God. I can trust him. The whole thing God is trying to get us to come to is a place where we're strong and very courageous. And that's the emphasis in this chapter. And what causes that strength and that courage? It says the righteous are as bold as a lion. It is conformity to who God is. It is godliness that gives the courage and the strength. Because we have another spirit that is in conformity to the Holy Spirit of God that allows the Spirit of God to fill us to fullness with the boldness of the Holy Ghost. No, it is not in our own courage and strength, but we must initiate our spirit to be strong and to be courageous. As it says in verse 7, 
only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. We are in a time when it is time to inherit the heathen, when it is time to conquer our city, to conquer our nations for the kingdom of God, and it demands a price. It demands that we face the opposition head on. What is that opposition? It is the partitions of division in denominationalism that have made us insular one from another so that we are not in unity as the body of Christ to conquer. We must be willing to pay the price to stand in the gap, to be repairers of the breach and restorers of the paths to dwell in. The word of God makes it clear in Acts concerning Christ, of which it says, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. Is this not the time for the restitution of all things? Yes, it is. God is calling us to come out of our shells of deception, to come to the place of the crossing over like Jacob had to cross over from all of his turmoil and serving Laban. And he had to face the reality of the consequences of his own deceptions in Esau. And he had to wrestle with God. And it was then when he began to let go of those deceptions that they unraveled. And God revealed himself to him. And he said in that passage that he'd seen the face of God. And it is in the time of crisis that we cry out to God and God reveals himself to his people. That's what's going to happen to Israel when their military might is broken as described in Zechariah 12. And it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. That is God speaking. And that is when they are birthed and brought forth anew as a nation into relationship with God. The time has come to let go of all of our turmoils of self-initiation that have caused denominationalism, that have caused us to be like a prostitute that isn't pure before God, that isn't led by the Spirit of God. In this passage, there's so much that I haven't shared, and I know it's getting near an hour. Verses 6 to 7. I have a little bit of notes I made. God emphasizes that we are to focus on taking the self-initiative on solely one thing, which is to be strong and very courageous in observing to do all that God has commanded us. There is a danger of departing from the commandments of God towards the extreme of the right or the left, which is entering the which is evidence that we are entering into unbelief that caused Israel to fall the first time they entered the promised land. So what is the extreme of the right? It is emphasizing holiness without relationship with God that becomes oppressive, that has a conception of God similar to Cain who is offended at the consequences of God's holiness and perceived God as holy and demanding without recognizing the goodness of God. And obviously, as a result, did not recognize God's mercy and so thought that 
he could bring his own righteousness before God and it would be acceptable because he lost sight of the ultimate perfection of God's being of love and of the goodness that was in it and was offended at the curse. So he started to perceive God as an enigma and he formed his own self-oriented image of God, a God that didn't assure destiny, that didn't assure grace and mercy and forgiveness. So we have that aspect of deception, of departing from the commandments of God. And the other is justifying immorality, condoning that which violates the integrity of God's love of his holiness, a false gospel of grace that does not understand that God is a God that will chastise his children and that we are called to buy of the Lord gold that is tried in the fire to say to God, I choose rather to be chastised by you to go through trials and to have ungodliness removed from me than to choose a life of deception and ease that takes me away from you. I want to love you and know you, God. God commanded the lukewarm church I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. You're not rich. When you say you're rich because you got all this wealth and equate that with godliness, that's a deception. It says in the word of God that he's chosen the poor as rich and heirs of the kingdom of God. Elijah didn't have many material things, but he was rich because he had relationship with God, the very source of wealth. When the focus and the emphasis is always on equating material gain with godliness, we are deceived. God is calling us to repent of our gods of materialism. To justify the gods of pleasure and amusement in our midst and of leaven. It takes away the genuine reality of God's presence in our midst with mere activity. Yes, on the one hand, people will violate the integrity of God's love by condoning worldliness. And on the other hand, they can go the other way and have no grace they can preach about denying, taking up the cross and denying yourself, and yet they don't have any understanding of grace behind what they're preaching. So they leave people feeling oppressed and discouraged. In verse 8, God commands his people to meditate in his word day and night and to have it in their mouth. Then our way becomes prosperous spiritually. And we have good success, and that spiritual relationship will also dictate in whatever way God has ordained for us into material things in his time. But that's a test, again, that when we are filled with ease, that we do not allow self to become the focus in the place of God. In relationship with God. In verse 9, when God commands us, there is every reason to do his commandments. With strength and courage 
and without fear or discouragement. This is because we're, we're doing it out of the knowledge that God is with us in all of this. Now, this is very plainly brought out in 1 John chapter 4 as well. And so we might just turn to there briefly as I close this message. In 1 John chapter 4. And we, I'm just skimming down because this is all kind of ad-libbed. Uh, first, oh, I'm, pardon me, I'm not in chapter 4 yet. Here we go. Chapter 4. And we read this. In verse 17, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now, I wanted to emphasize a particular verse in relation to this perfect love that casts out fear. There's a verse here in First John that emphasizes, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will do it. It may be, uh, in ver I, I didn't think it was in chapter five, but I'll take a quick look. I'm not sure exactly where this verse is. Uh, yes, verse 14 of chapter five. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. This is the confidence. Why do we have that confidence? Because we know that he hears us. And it also says in this passage of Scripture, probably back in chapter four. This confidence is related to the fact that we know that we are doing his will. So when the word of God is emphasizing to be strong and of good courage in order to be a true servant to others, a true example to others, a true leader to others, there is an understanding of no fear within the very core of our being. Fear is that which is a consciousness of loss. It is that state of being that is always grasping to fill the void that was only made to be filled by God. It is a state of deception that believes that somehow these other things that we are seeking to initiate will bring fulfillment when they have not been perceived to be coming from God, but are actually coming from ourselves because we are initiating it. The secret is to enter into a relationship with God. 
we recognize that our wholeness is in him. And that is recognized out of recognizing who God is in the perfection of his love. That in this integrity of love that requires judgment and is transcendent in mercy is absolute wholeness because there's no destructibility in it. And it is in that wholeness that there's absolute reality because reality is that which is absent of any destructibility and cannot be destroyed. And it is that reality that satisfies the inner core of one's being and assures a confidence because there's no fear, there's no grasping as we learn to be reciprocative of who God is and allow that to saturate our being and to conquer the tendencies of deception that God unravels through the circumstances in our lives and through which we can gain transformation into conformity to such a state of being. Through choosing to buy of God the gold that is tried in the fire rather than the deceptions of this world system and the systems of this world. Okay, I know I've been preaching for probably well over an hour and there's much more that could be shared. But the emphasis, I'll just mention the last points in this passage that I wrote. In verses 10 to 15, we see that when possessing the heathen for God, it requires that all participate in unity until the enemy is conquered. And I have already talked about how God wants us to conquer the walls of partition and to come into unity as the body of Christ and such a unity as the Father has with the Son that allows for the inhabitation of his presence corporately that releases the authority of God upon the earth to shake all that is shakable, that what is unshakable might remain. That's in verses 10 to 15. And lastly, in verses 16 to 18, God's people need to see the evidence that God is indeed with the leadership and that they are raised up of God and also that they are very strong and courageous in the face of opposition. That is basically what is being mentioned in Joshua, and I will go back to that passage in Joshua now. Just point out that last little bit there. Sometimes it's not so easy to get back right away to where you were. Hopefully, um, what I'll do is just go back another way. There we are in Joshua now. And in the last verses there, The people respond to Joshua and they say, all that you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we'll go. We're willing to face opposition without fear, to be bold and courageous. We make a choice to initiate conformity of our soul to God by choosing in our spirit to be bold and courageous enough to let go of the things we're grasping onto and to cleave onto God in all of these situations. And it says here that they would hearken unto Joshua just as they hearkened unto Moses. And the people then tell Joshua 
only be strong and of good courage. So they're emphasizing two things here. They're recognizing that God is with Joshua and that long as they see the evidence that God is truly with him as a leader, they're behind him. And they're also emphasizing that as a leader, Joshua must be strong and of good courage so that they don't become discouraged. And we also, brothers and sisters, as servants one to another, which is what a true leader is, need to be an example to those around us, to be able to choose in the midst of discouragement to not be dismayed, but to be strong and of good courage in the face of trials and opposition. That is when God's presence will break through in our lives and conquer the oppression of the enemy that brings discouragement. God bless you all, and I look forward to continuing to minister the word of God to you. Thank you for listening to this message.